And I was shocked. I was really shocked that in this day and age, that the most basic data point for any company on planet Earth is understanding demand. We cannot do that. Guided by over 25 years in the data and research industry and assisting innovators with investment banking and advisory services, Seema Vasa brings you Data Gurus, a leading market research podcast that offers actionable insights for business acceleration and value creation. Join her as she speaks with key innovators in the space to bring you up to speed with the current state and the future of data analytics and data ecosystems. Need support on your market research projects? Paradigm Sample is a full-service market research solutions provider. Whether you need help with questionnaire design, survey programming, or online data collection, we are ready to assist. Paradigm can do as little or as much as you need, saving you time so that you can focus on insights. Learn more at ParadigmSample.com. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasa, your host. And today I'm joined by Anwar Haji, who is the founder and CEO of Valence. Welcome, Anwar. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And for listeners, just share where you're based. I'm based in Amsterdam. Okay. That's a fun city, isn't it? It's lovely. Very vibrant, cozy with a lot of history. Yeah, I bet. How long have you lived there for? Well, I was actually born and raised in the suburbs of Amsterdam, close okay. to Amsterdam. So, uh, so all my life. You've been there your whole life. Fantastic. I know we have a lot to cover, so let's dig right into it. Just give some listeners a little bit of your background, how you, I don't want to say fell into research, but how you moved your way into market research and consumer insights. Yeah. So actually I was always aiming to pursue an academic career. Even when I was a kid, I can even remember in primary school called the professor. So once I got the opportunity to finish my master's degree, finally also able to obtain PhD position within behavioral economics. Wow. I was really, really adamant on pursuing academic career. And I was, and I still am a very big fan of these major figures like Daniel Kahneman, who really pioneered and brought together the field of psychology and economics. And that made me incredibly interested in simply human psychology as a, the ultimate determinator of human behavior. Because all I want to do as a scientist is really the same way that physicists try to understand the physical world and right. try to predict it. I want to do the same thing when it comes to human behavior. And for me, behavioral economics was really my way to do that. And that's how I really started to look into research, behavioral what? research. But what I wouldn't consider yet market research, because right. the industry space is something I only got exposed to later on. Got it. I wanted to ask you, as a young person, how did you know that you wanted to go into academia? Like, are, is your family grounded in that as a profession? Or did you just kind of see other professors or academic professionals and say, that's what I want to do? Well, actually, I mean, my family comes from a very humble background. They came from Morocco okay. uh, as immigrants looking for basically an economic opportunity here in the Netherlands uh, right. and really, you know, build a life. 
And I truly appreciate it. Like that way I got the opportunity to, to take the time, get myself educated. Right. And my parents initially thought that I'm going to get educated to start, you know, having a nice career. But with all that time I got on my hands, I got really, really curious. And I got fascinated, just simply fascinated mm. by developments that happened in the past 100 years in, in cognitive psychology, mm. in economics. By the way, economics as a field was more philosophy than anything before the 1900s. So economics was never taken seriously by other scientists, like never. Like, like it wasn't considered even a science. It was like, it's philosophy. And what's philosophy compared to science is philosophy is just a bunch of thought experiments. Yes. Yeah. Where you just imagine hypothetical worlds and science is where you have a hypothesis and yeah. you test it against reality. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my heroes, who's by the way still alive, surprisingly mm -hmm. enough, is Vernon Smith. Vernon Smith won the Nobel Prize in economics. And what he did, and this was very early in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. So way back in the 50s, what he did was he did classroom experiments on economic theory. So, for example, very simple, the laws of supply and demand. Right. Could you replicate that in a real life setting where you define the supply function and the demand function? You know, yeah. you, so this, you're willing to pay this much. Are you willing to sell it for that much? Could, would the outcome be exactly according to the economic theory? So, so we go from a thought experiment to an actual experiment. And Vernon Smith, surprisingly, basically as a physicist was able to replicate a lot of the theories. Wow. And that was such an amazing breakthrough. And he basically gave birth to the field of experimental economics. And you have to imagine, so his background is in economics and Daniel Kahneman was starting around the same time, but he came from a very different angle from psychology. Right. And that is the moment in recent history that really got me interested. Like now, now we can approach human behavior as physics, like we can actually now start to predict human behavior. And that got me really, really excited. Yeah. It's the blend of the thought and the philosophy, but rooted in scientific practice. Exactly, exactly. And I do need to mention the problem, however, is that it turns out that at the aggregate level, what I mean by aggregate level is when you have a lot of people interacting with each other, you can actually predict behavior as physics, like, like market behavior, but individual behavior, it's hardly predictable. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's almost like you have the same dualism in physics, right? Like sure. where you have at the aggregate level, when it comes to gravity and all of that, you can predict the exact behavior of physical material, but at the quantum level, you have no idea what the single particle is going to do. And you have the exact same thing with human beings. Yeah, I know there was one, perhaps getting your PhD or when you were at university, there was a project that the university was really working on in terms of doing quantitative research, qualitative research. And that kind of sparked your interest in terms of what the results of that new product, what actually happened after all that research that was done. Tell us a little bit more about that. So... The way how I got into the industry is I did my PhD at the Amsterdam Business School. So we got exposed from time to time to real cases where they would like to have our input. And there was this large multinational Dutch company, Consumer Electronics, that launched 
this device, an activity tracker, which looked like a USB stick. You could put it in your pocket and it would count the number of steps and you would even get coaching based on your activity level. This is, you know, right? A pedometer. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And they launched this product at a price point of close to $200 and it completely failed. Like no one bought the product. Now, mind you, they did all the market research. Yeah. Like they did all the validation. So they had this formal process to make sure that every product development goes through this process where you try to make sure there's enough demand. And I was shocked. I was really shocked that in this day and age, that the most basic data point for any company on planet Earth is understanding demand. We cannot do that. We find it a really, really hard thing to do. And this got me into the queue. Because when I looked, this is when I got interested in market research, because I started looking into how did you actually establish that there's going to be enough demand for this product? Right. And they said, well, we did surveys and focus groups. And I said, surveys and focus groups? What what do you mean? Because I know, I mean, I know what the survey is, but, but I was surprised to learn that this is the primary source of data to determine whether there was demand. Why Why am I surprised? Because you have to imagine, I've been into the field of behavioral economics really for several years. Sure. And it's already a basic principle since the 50s in behavioral economics and experimental economics that claim behavior does not correspond to actual behavior. So that's a methodological problem. That's a, a huge problem when it comes to understanding reality. And the way that got solved is we make the incentives real. So instead of having people hypothetically imagining what choice they would make, so in this case, whether they would buy this product at $200, right. we, make it, we make it as real as possible. And this is when I started to play around with the ideas, how would I have done the research if I could use my behavioral economic knowledge? to help this company validate demand? How would I have done the research? And I would take a very different approach. And this is how I started Veilings as a company. Okay. Which is, instead of having a survey, like where people only provide their claimed behavior, we actually make them risk their own money. So how does that work? There's some behavioral economics principles, right? Here in terms of, human behavior in terms of having, quote unquote, skin in the game? Exactly. Because we know there's a thing called hypothetical bias. So if you type in in Google hypothetical bias or in Google Scholar, yeah, it's a whole stream of literature. And the hypothetical bias is the gap between what people claim they're going to do, especially when it comes to new things, right? right? Like new, like completely new things, like a new product, new service, a new habit, anything new. And what they actually do. And the hypothetical bias is really big in some cases. Mm. It's like sometimes they would claim they're willing to pay $100 while in fact they wouldn't go as far as $10. Right. For real. Okay. And that's a major concern because if you're a company, you're a large company or even a small company, you make this huge bet on a new product and you need to trust the data then you need to take into account the hypothetical bias. Now, the hypothetical bias is not a new thing. I'm not claiming that I'm the one who made the industry. Everyone is aware, but how do you deal with it? And I know that there's this approach where you just 
you know, you, you have this hypothetical measure, but then you take a conservative estimate of it, right? But yeah. you actually don't know the real number. Right. What I would argue for, instead of taking this complex way, why not simply make research real? It might sound too simple to be true, but that's behavioral economics. Yeah. You make the research real. You make people actually risk their own money to get a real understanding of demand. And when we did this, by the way, for the pedometer, so where they tried to sell it at $200. So this was the market price. So $200, you want to capture, you know, a number of percentage of the market. When we did the study and we used this particular technique where people place a bit, they put like a sealed bit. So that way you could get a neutral reading on demand. The highest bit placed. And we had a sample in the hundreds of people. The highest bid place was $30. Wow. That's a big difference. That's, that's a, a huge If you know this number in advance, you would never ever launch the product because if your cost of goods to even it's produce the product is, is right. yeah, it cancels the whole thing. You don't right. invest in marketing. You don't build a factory. You don't, you know, these are major considerations, major strategic considerations, because a product launch is quite binary. Either you go for it, like you cannot just... Right, you can't do a mediocre product launch. No, you can't. So you either fully commit to it or you don't. By the way, at the same time, I also got to learn that science isn't as pretty as I thought it is, because I thought science was a way to have an impact on the world, the same way when we think about great scientists like Newton, Einstein... And others, it turns out that for the majority of people who are active in science, it's a reputation game. You're constantly trying to convince the other person that you're really smart to another smart person who would then cite you and then you gain points, there not money you or whatever. And then you get higher status and then you get, you know, one of it's the... Like it, it, it's social proof, right? It's social proof, yeah. And I wouldn't have mind that if it wasn't for the fact that no one reads the article except those people. So that doesn't have any impact. So for me, it became almost like a no-brainer. I finished my PhD and then I said, you know, I want to have true impact. I want to help small and large companies to have, make the right choices and that way have a positive impact on the world. So you started the company. Tell us a little bit more about your methodology because I find it fascinating in that people are truly using their own money to buy products. Yes, yes, but, but there are details to it. So Raylink uses what's called the victory method, and it comes from this field of experimental economics. And also Daniel Kahneman, if you look into his studies, he uses this method okay. to measure the math. It's almost considered like the golden standard within among psychologists and economists when it comes to measuring demand. And by demand, I mean, how far are you willing to go in terms of paying for a product? So if Starbucks comes with a new flavor, like how far are you willing to go in dollar terms? I'm not talking about measuring the price. I'm talking about your willingness to pay, which are two different things. So for example, a coffee might cost only $2.00. But you actually so much want the coffee, you, you're willing so to go as far as ten. $10. Yeah. yeah. Got it. And that's the victory method. The victory method is very special. And actually, the person who came up with the victory method is called William Victory, who himself was a Nobel Prize winner. And it's really intriguing. 
this particular method. And the way, and it's very simple at the same time. So the way it works is as follows. You as a consumer get invited to one of our studies, the same way you would get invited to a survey study. And we ask you the following, and we tell you the following. We're going to show you a product and we're not disclosing whether or not this product exists. So the product might exist, the product might not exist. And I'm going to ask you to place a single bit on the product, indicating your maximum willingness to pay. Okay. And it's perfectly fine, by the way, if that maximum willingness to pay is zero. That is perfectly fine because we're not forced to bid. We're we're interested in a bid, but even a zero is information. That means you're not interested in a product. That's right. And that's perfectly fine. We make that explicit. Like, hey, if you say zero, nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, but here's the thing. And this is really the thing where I think, I don't think anything like this exists within the industry right now, which is if the product is available and you place the highest bid, then you actually need to pay. Right. And have people challenged you? In what sense? Like they actually have to pay or are they excited about getting the product because they knew they were going to pay anyway? Well, here's the thing. If you take it seriously, then you should be very happy that you get to pay because it reflects your value for the product. Yep. And that's exactly the issue with traditional research when it comes to pure survey claim behavior is if you ask anyone if you ask the question, are you willing to pay this much? And then and you follow up on them, on that answer. You say, hey, you claimed in the survey that you're willing to pay $25. Right. Now, I'm giving you the opportunity right now to get the product for $25. Are you willing to take me up on that offer? I bet you that almost everyone is going to say no. Mm. Which means that this is the hypothetical bias. This right. means that... In claim behavior, people overestimate how far they're willing to go. They exaggerate how much they value the product. For, and there are all kinds of biases. Yeah. And the only way you can remove these biases is by making the research real. I mean, the same way when you go to the supermarket, I mean, when you buy a product, you know you're going to pay that amount at the checkout. You have no one to fool here. Uh, to me, the example, another example is like when they have the sampling of different products in the supermarket. I don't know if they have that in the Netherlands, but mm. you could try a new cheese and you try it and you feel so bad for the person who's standing there. You pick up the cheese and say, I'm going to buy it. And then you put it back in another cheese area because you yes. really weren't going to buy it. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> yes, yes. I always say, you know, it's a very good thing that humans, we have this bias when it comes to being just being positive. Yeah. We want to please others. We want to help others. We wish the best for others. Right. But when you do market research, you want to have a realistic view of what people are actually going to do. When you do a survey, a lot of people, and I think there's even research on this, a lot of people, they actually think they helping the researcher by giving a positive answer. Like, I'm willing to pay a lot for this. No, you're not really helping because if you're not going to actually pay that, then we're going to give the wrong recommendation to our client and they're going to launch a product that no one wants, which exactly happened to that pedometer. Right. And, but the way you can fix that, and that is what we do at Valings, the way we fix that is that we just make the research real. You just have skin in the game. When you have skin in the game, 
suddenly everything changes. Suddenly things become real. Suddenly, oh, I need to pay for this. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, in that case, I'm passing. I'm yeah. passing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm happy that you just told me that. It's like giving somebody a free trial and they have no skin in the game, right? It's like. A exactly. Exactly. We do these placement studies where we actually give the product to people to try out, but then we still ask them, wait a minute, how much are you willing to pay to keep the product? Right. And right. that would reveal how much they actually really Very want the product. So tell me, I mean, obviously every methodology has its strengths and its challenges. It talked to me a little bit about what are some, you know, challenges or considerations that people have to think about in this methodology? Definitely. So the insights, this methodology is used in all kinds of ways, you know, to test concept, to test claims, also for pricing research. And the data speaks for itself, especially when it comes to products where you can quickly decide on how much you wait to pay for that. And these are products with a low retail price, right? Like anything you find in the supermarket. Yeah. I mean, you can even do it, you know, for products that's anywhere below $300, I would say. Right. But once you, for example, go into higher price items, like a car, let's say, where the customer journey takes way longer, mm -hmm. now suddenly it's not a question, even if somebody really wants a BMW, if you ask a person on the spot, how much are you willing to pay for it right now? Because when we do the research, they need to be ready to pay right now. Yeah. It's not like in 12 months from now or right. no, it's really right now. How much are you willing to pay for it right now? Well, then you won't get an accurate reading of demand because the way how demand for a car develops is really over a long period of time. It's a very elaborative process. Sure. So that's where you see the simple victory method doesn't work as well. That makes sense. Yeah. There, there are alternative behavior approaches, but purely the victory method, and we do more than that, but just the purely the victory method, that's where you really need to have a different behavior approach to get a better understanding of behavior. And I guess the other example that we talked about prior is like if somebody just bought a product in the category, their intention to want to buy another one and put money down in like the next month might be considered as well. Correct. Correct. I mean, because the context matters a lot because you're asking how much are you willing to pay right now? Right. Which is a very different question to what, how much do you really like this product? Sure. So for example, you could like pizza in general, but I just ate a pizza. Right. So, so I don't I want to even second. think about it right now. Exactly. I don't want the second pizza, but I, but in general, I like pizza. So we're more, much more likely to capture the moment right now take a snapshot of reality, then having a general understanding. And we already have that, by the way, for our clients, a more conservative uh, measure. Helped. Yeah, then having, yeah, you know, I just ate a pizza, but in general, I like it. So that blurs the picture for us a bit. But those are indeed drawbacks and considerations you need to take into account. Sure. So let's talk about the hot topic that everybody's talking about. It's AI and chat GBT. And basically, are we all going to be eradicated? <laughs> so it's a great question. I mean, maybe to give you a bit of context and history about valence. When I started, I wasn't even aware of the industry that much. So for example, I wasn't even aware of the existence of research panels. So when we started out doing our, our studies, our behavioral studies, we built out our own community. 
here in the Netherlands. And it was really cool because you had this community that knew as part of the customer journey that they have to pay for a product if they have to, if they win and whatnot. So they take it really, really seriously. I remember we had even this team shipping products the whole time. And we still do that, but we're now also engaging with research panels. Right. And when I got introduced to this world of research panels and, and I started to understand, so how does this work exactly? So these are people who basically signed up for a panel. They are rewarded by points for their opinion. And that already gave me like, okay, wait a minute. So for them, it's going to be really strange if they suddenly have to pay for something because they're getting paid. Right, right. So there was already stress right there. And then I realized, wait a minute. So if they are getting rewarded to fill out service, it means as, so me as an economist thinking, so there's this incentive to actually gain the system. Because if you misrepresent yourself, then you can find ways to gain more points. And indeed, this turned out to be an issue with panels. And in fact, I'm part of the Data Integrity Council as part of the Insights Association, where mm-hmm. is that's already becoming a bigger, bigger problem. Now, fast forward to 2023, and we have now the introduction of ChatGPT and AI is not a new thing, but it's got to a level where it's able to pass all human checks. Right. That's a paradigm shift. That means right now, there's no way of telling when you're collecting data online, whether the person you're interacting with is an actual real person or a bot. On top of that, there's a real incentive to have a bot doing the work because there are points to be collected, which can be turned into money and other valuable items. And this is really threatening to the industry, to market research. I think people underestimate how big of a problem this is going to be, become actually, because I think it's going to be paradigm shifting because once it becomes so polluted, and at the end of the day, what we try to do within the industry is to provide it confidence to our clients. So that's also why I got into the industry. Right. Is to help our clients to make the big decisions based on this data. And if that confidence disappears because we cannot trust anymore the data that we're getting, well, then we have a major, major issue at hand that we need to really rethink and how we interact with people, panels. People. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the reality is that whenever things like this are threatening to a broad industry, the most important thing is that the industry works together to solve the problem versus individuals going or companies individually trying to figure it out. And I see that happening, which is good. I guess the question I always wonder is, do we all agree to the level of urgency that's required here? The unfortunate thing, and this is across all industries. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even in the oil industry, everyone is aware of, for example, the risk of an oil spill. Yeah. How much priority does it get on the agenda? Unfortunately, it's often too low yes. until it actually happens. The big question is, are we waiting for our oil spill? Yeah. Oil, exactly. So if that's the case, then I'd rather not go through that route. So I'm in favor, we as indeed, instead of having individual players coming up with their own solution. Instead, what we should be doing is putting it on the agenda proactively. Yeah. Especially the ones that are so close to the actual drilling, right? So we see with our own eyes the dangers. Mm-hmm. We see as to how much of an issue it is. And we need to raise the awareness and put it high on the agenda and say, it's, hi, everyone. 
this is now a major risk factor. We as an industry need to take care of this. We need to give this more priority. Yeah. And even though it might work in the short term, it's going to help everyone in the long term. And, and it's a collective problem. It doesn't matter exactly. if you are the ecosystem. It's a collective problem. It's a, indeed, indeed. And at the end of the day, we want to execute on the promise that we can deliver high confidence insights to our clients. Yes. And that means we need to solve this proactively and to be able to deliver on this promise. So far, I haven't seen ways to really go about this problem. Can we really solve it? I mean, we used to have these, you know, basic checks like speed checks, cash right. chats and whatnot, but those all fail now. Like literally they fail. Like we need to go beyond that. And that means we all need to come together. We need to put it on the agenda and come up with a solution or multiple ways of tackling this. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Anwar, it's and been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm fascinated with the work that you're doing and I'm so glad that I met you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Data Gurus podcast brought to you by Infinity Squared. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tired of market research solutions that put your project in a box? At Paradigm Sample, we approach market research support with customized and consultative solutions. Whether you need help with questionnaire design, survey programming, or online data collection, we're ready to assist. Let us know your needs, and we can customize a solution just for you. Learn more at ParadigmSample.com.